Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and Social Broadcast, this is Transmitter, the radio show from xmtr.fm, a new space dedicated to sonic storytelling, original sounds, new voices and archive treasures from radio broadcasts, podcasts and sound art across the globe. I'm Lucia Skadzokio and I've been scanning the digital soundscape to cut through the noise. This next hour will be a little different than usual as it is dedicated to a project capturing the sounds and voices from the North Yorkshire coast in the UK. I played one of the audio postcards before on Transmitter but I thought I'd share the whole thing as well as a conversation with Alice Sharp artistic director and founder of Scarborough-based art institution Invisible Dust, who commissioned this work. You'll hear a series of audio postcards I made with Sylvia Malnati, as well as a field recording piece from the sea by Robert McKay, made with local young people. But first, let's hear from Alice Sharp to give us a bit of context. Invisible Dust I set up in 2009. I had this kind of interesting idea to combine both artists and scientists together and it was interesting because I went to an event where I saw a huge number of artists and scientists from all over Europe um, discussing climate change and I realised that there's something really quite important and special about that kind of chemistry that happens between an artist and a scientist and in order to look at climate change for people to both know about the science, but for it to be become something which interests people and gets them involved in climate change on a very sort of practical level of personal involvement. If you think about a scientific report, you know, we have a big scientific report comes out after something like COP, and it's quite difficult for people to come relate to. It either feels completely overwhelming and they feel like they're kind of unable to kind of make any sort of positive decisions on it, or it just feels very dry and they feel unemotional about it. And, and of course, the wonderful thing about working with artists is they can use humour, they can look at things in many, many different ways and really touch people emotionally. And I think it's when emotions are engaged in something that they start to care enough to, to do something about. And obviously with climate change, now has been a massive, big realisation of people to take it up and to get involved in it but there's still many many people who feel that they're not engaged in it and I think what we're really interested in Visible Dust is to try and really broaden the number of people who are engaged in it out and reach those sort of hard to reach people. What I like most about living by the North Sea is all the different walks that you can go on. It's very rugged and there's quite a lot of sea erosion and cliff erosion going you know the Farley Brink is in between and 
Bempton Cliffs on the way up towards Flamborough, where the bird sanctuaries are. Flamborough Head, there was a very famous battle. It's where the only ever American-controlled ship attacked English shipping. And so after Flamborough Head, you've got Caton and Filey, and then you come into Scarborough. So you've got some nice rugged cliffs coming along the coast. It's a Jurassic coastline. I have a beach near me called Caton Bay. It has so many like interesting fossils to go and find amazing like dinosaur footprints and ammonite. And the other way you've got the rugged cliffs of uh, Ravenscar and going up to Whitby which is about 18 miles from Scarborough. And of course most people know Whitby for Captain Cook. You've got the picturesque village uh, Robin Hood's Bay about 11 miles north of Scarborough on the way to Whitby. And then Scarborough really is a castle built in the 12th century and it stands on a rugged headland looking out over two sandy bays, the North Bay and the South Bay. Well, as far as we're concerned, this coastline is the best and it's the most interesting and there's an awful lot to talk about and understand. Light in the darkness, sailor, day is at hand See o'er the foaming billows, fair haven's land was the voyage sailor now almost gone Safe within the lifeboat sailor Pull for the shore And pull for the shore sailor Pull for the shore Heed not the rolling waves But bend to the oar Safe in the lifeboat sailor Cleats herself no more Leave that poor old stranded wreck And pull for the shore I realised that fishing was going in decline and it was such a shame that young ones weren't going to understand where they got the fish and chips from and then realised we don't have any history about the maritime coastline. So I got a group of people together and we now have our own property in Eastborough on the way down to the beach that we're able to put displays on and collect things for and lots of people when the parents are dying bring us stuff and say this is me dad's it's his life's collection do you want it so we've got an awful lot of stuff now one of the exciting things that a heritage organization gets to do is cultivate that ongoing relationship with the local community so that the history and the stories related to those sites can be preserved for generations to come you know the scarborough castle that you visit today looks very different to the Scarborough Castle that you might have visited 300 years ago. And that's not just because of the erosion of the building, that's because of the public works and the infrastructure projects and the community around it has changed so dramatically as well. The history of the site goes back 3,000 years and the castle itself was mainly destroyed by guns and cannons set up at St Mary's Church just down the hill. It is a place where you come for the history, but you would stay for the atmosphere and the views and the sense of space that's up here. You can really sort of have a moment just to appreciate the landscape and the views. I already had a relationship with that part of the coast because I'm from the northwest, from Chester, and we used to actually go over there on holiday and I knew a lot of the characteristics of the landscape, the steps in 
Whitby and Scarborough Castle and the Abbey are significant places that pepper my childhood memories from holidays. What I remember of Scarborough is probably quite like idealised as I was like 10. This sounds weird, but the air smelt salty and fresh. And there was like fields everywhere and we'd walk from the campsite through these fields to get to the seaside. Most visitors are still families with young kids. They sit on the beach if the weather's fine, they can buy the fish and chips. And that is still a real pleasure to see people enjoying those simple pleasures. Everybody's got a very close bond with their hometown. And I think a childhood spent fishing and on the beaches and the cliffs of the Yorkshire coast develops that bond. And we could have gone anywhere, but we chose Scarborough because it's got a place in my heart. And actually, in um, pure commercial terms, it's very, very good for what we do in Seagrove. Obviously, the north has suffered quite a bit like economically. So I think that having the coast around here is like such an asset to the different areas, so like Robinhood's Bay and Whitby. If the sea wasn't there, like you wouldn't get half the tourists. They wouldn't be the areas that they are. Yes, yeah, because yeah, it's bums, but so do all places and such. Because British Seaside Resort is doing very well. It's very clear, even from an early age, that tourism was a, a massive industry in Scarborough, probably the biggest. It's like I, I couldn't really imagine growing up anywhere other than coastal town. The project we're about to talk about is very much like that. So about two years ago, I met someone from Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, a guy called Terry Smithson, and when I chatted to him, he was talking about how they'd done a project and they had attracted a lot of people to coming to see nature and this was really increasing and it was really bringing in a local economy but also it was a real success in terms of people engaging with nature and I said to him well, what about bringing in art alongside the nature offer that's how Wild Eye was born really and I guess with the name it's really how we look at art is quite different maybe to how we look at other things and I think how we look at nature is also quite different to how we look at other things. If you were standing on the coast at Whitby, looking out to sea, if you were lucky enough to be there on a good weather day, you'd see a, a really blue sea, a sea that perhaps doesn't look full of life, but you'd hear seabirds wheeling around overhead. You know, you'd smell that salty sea air. If you kind of look down from your vantage point, you can see the sea crashing on the rocks below. It's an incredibly special place. The beauty of living by the sea is that you can always hear the wind and the waves and the oyster catchers and the seagulls. And in the summer, obviously, that changes when we get the noise of the fairground and people having candy floss and fish and chips and kids screaming, the donkeys braying. It's really soothing and relaxing. It's a nice place to go to sleep with. When we first open the curtains in the morning, it's there. You might sometimes like what you see. It's a beautiful, sunny, flat morning. It's lovely sunrise. Or you might not like it when there's an easterly or a northeasterly gale and huge seas bashing across the end of the pier and off the sea wall. I actually find it like peaceful when it's rough because the waves like crash a lot. Do you mm. like it when it's rough? I like looking at the sea. And I don't mind being on the sea. I certainly don't like being in it. You lot are more adventurous than yeah. me there.
that the seaside's always been a big part of my life. And I just love how it's such a like powerful force. And we kind of look across it with a little bit of wonder and we think about a kind of a romanticized vision of the sea and what might be coming over the horizon. I think in the past, the sea has been a place of real danger, of course, of connectivity as well, but it's often been where threats have come from. At times, I think we turn our backs on the sea as, as a population in the UK. We think we're connected as an island nation. I don't think we are. I don't think we think enough about the sea. Throughout my life, I've worked on and under the sea. I started off as a fisherman from Scarborough. We worked all over the North Sea in whitefish trawlers mainly, but also some potting vessels, crab potting and lobster potting. I just followed my dad, and it was just a formality of helping your dad after school, learning how to make crab pots at an early age, 12, 13 years old. Eventually, left school and went with my dad in a cobble, which is a 30-foot open boat. It was very hard. Summer months were spent with lobsters and crabs in the pots. And winter times we would be longlining for cod and haddock. The sea is everything to us. It provides for us by allowing people to catch fish from it. It allows people in the leisure industry to sail on it and row on it and take passengers to sea. It's got so much life on and under the sea. The reason I moved back up here was because of the surf. So all my friends down in Cornwall laughed at me because there's a famous place for surfing. I visited family up here and I saw how good the surf was and I moved up and they just couldn't believe I'd want to leave Newquay to come to Yorkshire and go surfing instead. Off the coast here in front of us and off the coast of Yorkshire, at times we will have a lot of sediments from the land or from coastal erosion, sand and silt and mud and clay particles in the water and they change the colour of the water so that we have a shift to greener and browner wavelengths so the, the surface of the water looks different depending on the amount of sediments that are in there. And then we have the living component of the seawater, the phytoplankton, the grass, the plants of the sea, and they're absorbing the sunlight and so we would perceive a greenish shift or in a very dense situation where there's a lot of phytoplankton the water might actually look dark and we sometimes get that when there's a very strong what we call a bloom of plankton in the waters of the north sea when you go diving you're completely encompassed by your environment there's no distractions really from elsewhere your senses are completely overwhelmed by that marine environment so you know that feeling of yes the cold in the first instance but the different things that you're seeing that are so different from land. The peace, to be honest, is a huge attraction. You'll be diving down the line and you'll be going down and the water will be getting that bit darker, you still keep going down the line and start losing a little bit of light and then you just start to see this glimmer of some of the marine life on the wreck and you know that wreck just appears out of the gloom. You still get that same buzz of excitement when you see the wreck just appear before me. If you go into what once, you'll do it again. That's a simple thing about it. Especially at the moment, because life on land becomes so tricky. What says people, the second you put your foot in the water, this is surfing, paddle boarding, swimming, all your problems stay on land. You just get the water around you and you can leave the hard aspects of your life behind. And you can just go and enjoy being somewhere different. It's very relaxing. It's very, very good for your mental state. I'm like a child every time I'm there. I go as much as I possibly can. It's just, so relaxing. I've lived for years just down the street from the sea, so 
the idea of being away from it is so scary. I couldn't imagine going out anywhere else where I couldn't see the sea. Imagine if you're looking at something which is like an animal or a bit of countryside, you give something to yourself of it because you're kind of interested in how it makes you feel. I think nature is something very important to us as human beings. And I think art is the same. You can't really look at an artwork unless you give something to it yourself. And so what we've done is with Yorkshire Wildlife Trust, we've set up a number of possibilities of doing uh, projects between Scarborough and Whitby up in North Yorkshire. People imagine it to be buckets and spades and candy floss. And of course, it is all those things. But actually, Scarborough's got incredible night wildlife. North Sea actually. We've got so many different species that a lot of people don't actually even know that we've got. I still find species now that I would have never thought that we'd even got here. Yes, obviously 180 degrees of Scarberry's open sea so we do get harbour porpoises coming through. If you sit on the harbour wall almost any time of year sometimes you can see the thin shape of the harbour porpoises back dipping in and out of the sea as they catch fish. We went on a boat. Wet wheels, yeah? Yeah, it's with Wish. It goes really, really fast. And you can see, like, whales and dolphins. Didn't see a whale, though. What did we see? Yeah, we saw a dolphin. I didn't know we got dolphins here. Nowadays we do. Didn't used to, but recently we have. And whales, yeah. Previous to the last couple of years, Maybe once, twice a year, dolphins would come past. I think they sort of almost like it was like a summer jolly. They'd come down from the Moray Firth, go as far as Bridlington, and then head back up. But the last couple of years, they've been hanging around all up and down this coast. So it's been beautiful. People don't believe that the dolphins that are in the North Sea, but they are. When we used to be further offshore in trawlers, they used to swim along with us. And porpoise, you see a lot. Porpoise close in shore, seals. Seals are not really a fisherman's friend when I fished with my dad with the salmon nets. We used to catch sea trout and salmon, but the seals used to eat more of them than what we managed to get out of the nets. Seals often come and check you out. If you're surfing someplace, this little head will pop up about 20 metres away and then it'll disappear and it'll appear somewhere else. You know it's been sniffing around your feet while you've sat on your surfboard checking you out. I was diving off Ravenscar, turned around and there's a seal pup sat on a rock right behind me. And he just wasn't scared at all. He was looking at us and looking around us and then swam off. So we swam a bit further into shore and these seagull pups were just all around us, really interacting. This puppet looks right at me and sort of falls up to me slowly. And then with his snout, he just nudges me mask. And I've never seen anyone that close before. We get cormorants floating around, diving down for the fish. We get herring gulls and we get kittiwakes flying around through the town. Oyster catchers and sandlings in the winter. There's a lot of seagulls as well. Far, far too many seagulls. If you went to somewhere like Flamborough Cliffs, you'd see a huge colony of breeding birds in the springtime. 
and it is the most wonderful spectacle. It's a real assault on the senses because you can hear those birds, you can definitely smell them as you walk towards the cliffs and of course you can see them just you know whirling around in front of you everywhere. When the herring's drift net fishing was just a line of netting on the surface where herrings come up in the dark you've got millions of herrings all battling it's just like rain on a moonlit night it's awesome and then as daylight comes we would watch the herring mats go down to the bottom and we would shoot our trolls and tow through them and hopefully catch the cod which was feeding on the herrings as it hit the bottom. I think most people, if they were to think about diving in the North Sea, would instantly think that it would be cold and, and very dark and there wouldn't be a lot to see, but actually there's a huge amount to see down there. The life that you encounter is really quite incredible. So from very small animals, things like nudibranchs, which is a type of sea slug, to starfish, to crabs and lobsters, to bigger animals, things like all sorts of fish species, of course. I've seen octopus off this coast before. Not very often. I think they'd be better off seeing them at night. I always enjoy going after the seaweed farm and we see the seals, the dolphins, the occasional whale, lots of bird life. It's fantastic to be out there with them and actually in their environment and watch what they do. But I think sometimes when you're so busy you don't find time to really sit and enjoy nature. So I volunteer for the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. It's just called the Sea Watchers. In working with members of the public and creating this network of citizen scientists, we've got this network of people that are collecting data for us, but you know, also really care passionately about their natural environment. The big charismatic species that we see off the Yorkshire coast, they're all feeding on fish, which themselves are supported by the plankton. So we've got evidence in front of us of a very active living food chain. It's challenged the scientists to understand what the important elements are and, and where the risks might be in the future, for example, if the temperature changes. There's been a real interest and push to emphasise and to promote all sorts of art-based things that aren't in London. And it feels like Scarborough's really grabbing that opportunity and there's quite a lot going on. Am I right in thinking that? Are you part of that kind of shift? Yes, it is actually. I think you're right. I think that the um, Scarborough Museum, Crescent Arts, there's um, something called the Old Parcels Office. There's a new theatre group called Arcade. I think really there has always been artists in Scarborough, but I think it feels like there's a kind of new impetus. And I guess it's a combination of different things. One is perhaps a number of organisations that have just set up there. Hopefully us being there over the last four years has also kind of upped a different aspect, which is obviously looking at environmental concerns with artists. And I think for local artists, it's a really good thing. I've spoken to a few people and they've said they're really excited about more openings, more things happening in Scarborough, which, um, you know, it's like a critical mass thing, isn't it? The more things that happen, the more things that will happen as well. And I guess with COVID, there's also been a change where people are realising that it can work remotely. And there's a lot of people moving into Scarborough at the moment. Now that the fishing has ended, now that the boats have all gone, 
Now that the keys are deserted, there's talk as to what can be done. For once there was herring aplenty, once there was cod by the score, once there was fish landed daily, just as in the fisherman's song. What was funny about the site visit when I went back to look at the locations for this sculpture commission is it was in March, so it was incredibly bleak. It took me by surprise because it, it didn't relate to the memories that I had. And obviously the cliff line is very, very exposed to the elements. And the day that I went was a very cold and very windy day. So it was interesting because it suggested an air of vulnerability, incredible amounts of exposure, which I hadn't felt about those places before. I'd always remembered having picnics on the grass by the castle in the sun, and it didn't relate to this harsh environment that I encountered. The interesting thing about Wolf with Bianca Scarborough if we set ourselves back in the past, say for example, to the first millennium AD, what we would experience at the satellite site is that we'd be surrounded by an awful lot more land than we would be now. And this is all down to erosion, and that cliff is eroding as we speak. Those cliffs are retreating, eroding at such a fast rate. You can really see homes falling over the cliffs. When Scarborough began its life, it was a port for landing the herring and supplying the monasteries with fish, just as a beach with a few cottages on, and it's grown and grown since then. Certainly the old town, based down around the harbour, all the houses down there were filled with fishermen, sailors, merchantmen, and even shipbuilders. All that disappeared when steam came along and ships were built out of steel or iron rather than wood. So the heart of Scarborough was connected to the sea, to the fishing and to the shipbuilding. It's three score and ten, yeah, boys and men were lost from Grimsby town. From Yarmouth down to Scarborough, many hundreds more were drowned. Our herring craft, our trawlers, our fishing smacks as well. They long defied the bitter night and battled with the swell. When I first used to come down to the beach, it was totally different. Well, it was the fishing and boats and we used to have wood boats landed here with cargoes of wood from all over. When I left school in 1962, there was probably 30 to 40 trawlers and the same amount of cobbles. Now, I think you could count the trawlers on one hand. Three trawlers and 24 cobbles. They're all small boats working single-handed. Fishing has been on the decline, obviously, since the 70s, since the European Union put the quota system in. I've done all sorts of fishing. I've done sea net fishing pair trawling, single trawling, I've done mid-water trawling. Most of our time was spent bottom trawling, which is catching cod, haddock, place, lemon sole, dover sole, skate, everything that was on the bottom, towing a big trawl along the seabed. What was once Scarborough Harbour was full of small fishing boats has now been reduced to really big, what they call factory ships. The fishermen down there now, there's a lot of Filipinos, Manda trawlers and Eastern Europeans. The family traditional, follow your father. It's a shame that has uh, dwindled in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, the majority of people in the town have lost that 
direct connection to the sea, that closeness with the sea that existed probably a century ago has definitely waned now. We're all more connected to our computers, I think, than to the sea. Since the first lockdown, the start of last year, there've been loads, loads more surfacing, but a lot more people connecting with the ocean. I mean, I know a lot of sea swimmers, a lot of surfers, and everyone said the same thing. There's a lot more people in the water. I think Scarborough is having a bit of a renaissance in itself. It's a little bit less kiss me quick hats and rock, but I think we are a town that is becoming more chic, a bit more independent. Everything has changed, and I think all you get now in Scarborough is mainly tourism and older people. It needs to be a little bit more opportunity for younger people. I mean, there's, you know, there's obviously the tourism side of things, but the tourism is only there through the summer months anyway, and a lot of this work is only seasonal. So they need to find an industry which can perform better on a year-round basis. One thing that's very obvious is the rise in offshore wind, a large amount of economic activity associated with that as we gear up to producing huge amounts of uh, electricity from offshore wind farms. Although to most people it might be out of sight, most of the wind farms are over the horizon, it's certainly the very big ones. What we have got, which is very exciting, just started in the last year, is a seaweed farmer and he's going to grow this kelp in a seaweed farm just about four miles off of Scarborough. Seagrown is a newly established company. We're the first in the UK to be farming seaweed at commercial scale in an offshore setting. And we've seen a lot of talent, a lot of young people disappear because there's no work for them. And if we can provide sustainable long-term jobs in a new marine industry on the Yorkshire coast, I think that that's a good thing. Tell me a bit more about Wild Eye, because there's quite a few elements to it, aren't there? It's not just one thing. Yes, yeah. Well, I think that the kind of the main aspect is to create a number of observation points from Scarborough to Whitby. And those observation points will be something where an artist creates a structure or a sculpture to link local people to nature. That's kind of the heart of it. But then the second part is to attract new uh, visitors and new tourists to Scarborough. You know, if you want to go and see Wales, a lot of people go to places like New Zealand or Canada. But actually, we've got Wales in Britain. And then to sort of embed things with local communities, going down to Scarborough, we've got Ryan Gander has created a uh, sculpture with a very long name. It starts off, we are only human, incomplete sculpture for Scarborough to be finished by snow. Had the brilliant opportunity of working with Scarborough Castle. So... Scarborough Castle is this incredible headland. So if you just imagine when you walk up into Scarborough Castle, you've got this a very kind of dilapidated keep. So it's kind of quite a, an epic sort of uh, you know ruined castle. And then you walk past it and you just hit this incredible vista, which you can see right up towards Whitby in the north. Ryan's piece is right on the sort of north part of the headlands. And he came up with this idea of creating a sculpture which is in the shape of a dolos. If you think about the way that we protect our beaches, quite often on harbours as well, you have those kind of um, concrete blocks which are in these geometric shapes and you see them everywhere right across Britain. And so he's used one of those shapes. Then he's subtracted a layer um, using a computer off the top of both sides of the dolos. So you've got this area that will only be um, completed by snow as the sculpture is incomplete. Who knows whether snow will be something that we don't see anymore and it just gets warmer, but um, it may be that we do have snow. 
and mm-hmm. I'm just waiting for that moment so that I can actually go and see the sculpture being yeah. completed, which will be fantastic to see, you know. And the other lovely thing about the piece is you can sit on it and you can jump on it. So the kids have really, really enjoyed it. And that piece is, you know, it's there for 10 years. Whitey Portis, Crumpty Falls, Time, Dogger, Fisher, German by Humber, Thames, Dover, White, Portland, Plymouth, Whiskey, finished there. Scarborough's more or less in the borderline between Forth and Tyne. So when you listen to the weather forecast, that's what we used to listen for. I don't know whether it's just me, but I do feel like the weather has kind of shifted a little bit. Practically all I know about climate change is everything's just jumbled up. Well, obviously the weather's changed quite a lot and I feel like along the coast when I'm walking on the beach, I feel like it keeps getting destroyed and that's really sad to see. It's cold in college actually during my A-levels. It's actually some of the fastest eroding coastline in the world. Flooding is normal, isn't it? And it shouldn't be. In Whitby town centre, it, mm. it can flood and mm. it has done fairly recently as well. The tide is getting higher now so they've got metal shutters to put against the shops so it's going to get more difficult. On the seaside we can see loads of pollution coming from the sea, from the beaches. For me as a child I remember seeing some rubbish on beaches But I think it was very minimal. But I know that in my lifetime, I have seen the amount of pollution just increasing steadily and steadily. And these days I would never expect to walk down a beach and not see any litter. So I think we've just grown up in a culture where if you throw your crisp packet on the ground, you assume somebody's gonna come and pick it up. It's very frustrating because there are plenty of bins and plenty of signs saying litter damages wildlife. I mean, personally, I do think uh, plastic in the seas is a very big issue. And as a diver, I do see marine pollution from plastic, you know, if it's thrown in or washed in through water drainage systems. I've seen the Scarborough fishing industry change drastically. When I was a schoolboy, I started going to sea on the fishing boats from Scarborough, catching whitefish, almost universally whitefish trawling. Last 20 years or so, those whitefish trawlers have almost completely disappeared. Yes, I think the water's warming up. If you were catching dogfish, everybody in the North Sea was catching them. They disappeared. Now you're, you're talking about a few boxes where you were talking about hundreds and hundreds of stones of them. Easy catching. And now we have what in effect is the second largest shellfish fleet in the UK. The problem, of course, will come that now we're completely reliant on shell fishing uh, off the Yorkshire coast. That warming water can uh, turn acidic when it gets carbon dioxide in there. And the shellfish, of course, don't like this because it attacks their shells. A lot of people aren't aware about how dirty our seas still are. I know people that uh, used to swim here in the 70s when they used to pump raw sewage into the sea. So it's a lot cleaner than that now, but we still haven't met that blue flag target. We know that the marine environment and the terrestrial environment faces a huge challenge because of human impacts, but there is an awful lot of really good work going on to try and tackle some of the challenges that we face. Close to the shore, there are things that we can do. 
in sheltered areas, for example, we can replant marine plants, things like seagrasses, which used to be very abundant. And they're really good. They grow fast. They take down a lot of carbon and they store it in their roots. And they also trap sediments and sediments are rich in carbon. So you build up a bank, almost you know, big reserve. And people call that blue carbon. Seaweed is a great absorber of carbon from the atmosphere. And what's better than that is that while it does it, it releases oxygen into the surrounding seawater and oxygenates the marine environment that it grows in. Some studies have shown that it's three or four times more effective at absorbing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere than rainforest or woodland is. And of course, it's much faster growing. From gaining a better understanding of climate change, I realised that I was doing things that could possibly contribute to climate change without even knowing that I was doing it. I do remember how like a few years ago it became much more mainstream on what was happening to the world. That definitely made me want to help a lot more than I was currently doing. The sculptures are essentially reproductions of concrete shapes that are gigantic that you find scattered along coastlines. They're sea defensives. The idea of them is that they prevent coastal erosion and they're made to compete with nature in some respects. I keep looking out and thinking how snow is really the material of our time and how significant it is because in 20 years perhaps the climate of Britain will be that of Barcelona and snow won't fall anymore. So I thought what would happen if I was to produce a sculpture that could only be finished by snow. So we'd be waiting for nature. When I was on the cliff at Whitby and the cliff at Scarborough it struck me as being like completely obvious in a great way to remind ourselves of our responsibility and the way that we fit into the world purely because I felt incredibly vulnerable. There was this huge landscape and this huge sky and this huge sea that were mighty and full of mystery and full of energy and power. One of the reasons I like the sculpture so much is that I think it raises awareness of the important role that the sea plays and the ecosystems in which we reside and in which we play a role. I like the idea that the work's called We Are Only Human because it reminds us how small we are in relation to the problem. So um, I produced a series of audio postcards as a lead up. Um, oh yes, that was fantastic. To yeah. thank you to the sculpture being built, and it was quite interesting for me because the postcards were recorded and produced during lockdown. A lot of my work is very place focused, and I tend to spend a lot of time in the place talking to people and making connections. So all of that had to be done remotely. So it was quite an interesting challenge to make a series of pieces about a place that I couldn't visit and that I hadn't really visited since I don't think I've been to Scarborough since I was about 10 or 11. People were so keen to speak to me and so open and I had some really long and interesting conversations and I think I really got a sense of the place and people's relationship to it from these calls and recordings that we did and the different groups that we worked with and from what I sense that you know there is really a a keen interest in the wildlife and the protection of it particularly I think a lot of people spoke about 
the problem of pollution and litter and things like that and keeping Scarborough clean and how to manage that. But also there, there seemed to be a lot of energy and sort of impetus to help that happen and to look after the local wildlife. Is that the sense that you get? I think it's varied. I think there are people that are really keen to do it. And then I think there are a layer of people who haven't really had the kind of time and the kind of headspace to engage with it. And I guess, you know, one of the wards just below the castle, for example, is a very deprived ward. And when we did the family day, people were coming up and saying, I mean, they live literally, I mean, you know, it takes them five minutes to get up to the castle. Um, There was one person who'd only been once in their whole life and a lot of children who'd never been into the castle because, you know, the parents just didn't have the resources to take them, you know. So I think for us, it's it's both engaging with those people that you chatted about who are very keen to develop the nature, but also that layer of children. I mean, there's some statistics um, that I've been reading in, I think it was Hastings, actually, where people don't take their kids to the beach, even though they live right next to the beach. So we're kind of looking at both sides. I started to think about this idea that snow is a good marker of time. So I was thinking about that in relation to the sculpture and I wondered how I could convey that in a physical form. When snow covers everything, it has a volume and it changes the form of objects. I thought, what would happen if I was to produce a sculpture that could only be finished by snow? When I think about this idea of waiting for snow to complete the sculpture, nature to play its part. I think quite a lot about the film Back to the Future, this idea of time travel and parapossible realities from moments where the consequences of actions in the present change the future. And just as there's a parapossible reality for those sculptures to be finished or not finished, there's parapossible realities to whether in 20 years' time we will see snow in Britain. This warmer weather and this change of temperature is going to impact our little ecosystem so much and that's quite scary to think that that maybe we won't see the things that we've grown up with anymore. The thing that would worry me most is like the damaging of natural beauty, especially along the coastline, and also like the destruction of habitats and like the extinction of species. What worries me most about the future is that we won't take action to change the path we're on soon enough. And then by the time everyone has realised, oh, we actually need to do something. We can't just share some information online. It's going to be too late. Our younger generation, like our kids and everything, they may not know like all the beauty of the species that we've grown up and been taught about. They'll be taught like they were extinct and I just think that's really sad. Something that worries me most about the future is probably the fact that if action isn't made quickly, in the future we might not have a suitable world to live in and I find that kind of scary. As you stand looking out at the sea now, in the same way that you can't necessarily see the problems that our marine environment faces, it will be equally difficult to see the changes that are occurring. 
We have the solutions to deal with the problems, we just need really urgent action to put those solutions into place. I do believe this attitude towards climate change is now changing. Offshore wind is only set to expand. There's also tidal energy as well, which hasn't been exploited properly yet. And that would be a phenomenal source of energy if we can work out how to harness it and do it economically as well. The big question is how do we ensure that we can work with nature, make sure that our activities are sustainable. And it would be nice for people to get that relationship back with the sea. Even in Scarborough, it's like people forget that. It's a coastal town, you know, that Scarborough has depended on the sea for many, many years. But I think Scarborough has a good future ahead of it. We have a beautiful coastline and if we can make people consume local produce and buy local goods, we could be very sort of eco-friendly, I think, and that's something I'd like to certainly see Scarborough head in that direction to become the greenest seaside resort in Britain. I think the coastal community should be thriving. And it's not just about fishing. Art and tourism are important. Renewable energy is going to be important. Different ways of using the sea, for example, seaweed farming and farming fish instead of catching wild fish. It's time that we start to turn the tide away from simply taking things out of the sea to actually growing things, use it as a garden. In this country at the moment, seaweed isn't used for anywhere near enough things. It's a very, very versatile, sustainable source of biomass. The kelp that we grow, it's got some really interesting platform chemicals in there, useful in loads and loads of industrial applications, such as biodegradable plastics. If you can make plastic from seaweed and it degrades once it goes back into the ocean again in effect it's gone back to whence it came really i think it will be increasingly important that our young people have the knowledge that's needed to really steward our natural environment as they grow older and we are seeing changes in that respect like the younger generations are growing up learning all about it from a really young age so there's a good chance they're all going to be involved in it which i think is really good I'm hoping that we do take drastic action and actually the change that we see is very much a positive one and that we see more seabirds wheeling from the cliffs on the Yorkshire coastline, that we see more seals and whales and dolphins and porpoises and that actually in the future our coastline is one that is really thriving because of the positive changes that we've made. But if we don't act then we can expect to see things go the opposite way. I just want to be able to grow old, have a family and have a cat. It's not very exciting ambition. I just want to have like a peaceful life and have a world to live in, you know? You've only got one life, like everyone does, so like, make other people happy and just not yourself. I just want to be able to live my life without having to worry about whether or not the world will still be in an okay condition to live in, say 20, 30 or 40 years. This series of audio postcards from Whitby and Scarborough was produced as part of the Wild Eye Project, developed by Invisible Dust and the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. Audio production was by Lucia Scadzocchio from Social Broadcasts, with field recording by Andrea Campisi and sound design by Silvia Malnati. For more about the project, please do visit invisibledust.org.
www.thepeopleshow.com. There's a project that we did after you did your very successful um, podcast. We started to talk to an artist I've worked with before called Rob McKay, who used to live in Scarborough and now lives in Leeds. Uh, I said to Rob, what about doing something around uh, recording some of these amazing animals? And if possible, we'll try and see if we can get a recording of a dolphin. So we started working on that. It's called Sea Songs. And Rob worked with a group of young people. Then we went to the rock pools and they put these hydrophones which are really microphones that are waterproof into the water and then we could hear all the little crabs running about which was really nice Mm. in in the rock pools but then the second part of it which was really exciting is that um, Rob went out for two days on the boat with the young people and they went and actually recorded the underwater sea sounds so at the start they went south of Scarborough they went round to Caton Bay and uh, there was this really loud knocking sound, which until Rob got back to Leeds and chatted to a couple of mates, he couldn't work out what it was. Anyway, it turns out it's this thing called a snapping shrimp. And these snapping shrimps are incredible. They are, you know, as you can imagine, the size of a shrimp. But they have this way of doing their claws together, which stun their prey, which creates a, a sound which you could normally expect to be like a really large animal, like a whale or a dolphin. And then they saw seals. So the seal sounds are very much like a sort of wailing sound. It sounds like, you know, almost, I can imagine people thinking it was a, a person in trouble when people had been sort of, you know, in bad weather on boats and stuff. And then they went round the second day up to the North Bay. And we worked with a guy called Stuart from this organisation, which is called Scarborough's Porpoise. And they found an area where the um, dolphins are and you can see the dolphins and then they recorded the actual sounds. And I don't know, how would you explain it? It sounds a little bit towards sort of techno-y type sounds and it's got this kind of real kind of sort of resonance to it. And the young people, most of them had never been on a boat in Scarborough at all. And I think everyone hadn't seen a dolphin before. So it was a really a special experience for them. And then they went back with Rob and they edited the sounds that they really made and they made them into an audio, which you can um, listen. Obviously, you're going to play some of it.
what are you planning next? We're going to do three quite ambitious projects that's going to be really interesting to work with local communities and, and uh, develop them. The first one is going to be a project which is with a local seaweed farm. So quite extraordinarily, Scarborough has got a farm where they go out and they grow seaweed over a big area of the sea. They're going to develop a new classroom and we're going to hopefully have an actual art piece on the boat. Secondly, we're going to work with local people to develop something called the cinder track which is a cycle track between Scarborough and Whitby and we're hoping to have a number of sculptures along that track and then the third one is to have an actual platform where you can view the porpoises so this will be a physical piece and it will be an actual sort of I guess a sort of sculptural platform you know on the right days and if we give the right information about the right days people can uh, see the porpoises and dolphins. If people want to find you physically and virtually what do they need to do? We're online as invisibledust.com and obviously if you want to meet any of us in person it'd be sort of emailing we, we all work remotely we have a, an office in, in Scarborough in, in uh, Woodend but we have a number of um, people all around the country that work for Invisible Dust. That's it from me you've been listening to Transmitter a social broadcast production and the works you've just heard are from Invisible Dust's Wild Eye Project in North Yorkshire. If you want to hear more audio works by other people, past and present, subscribe to xmtr.fm, our new platform dedicated to sonic storytelling, featuring works by radio makers, podcasts and sound artists from all over. I'll be back with more audio, radio and podcast discoveries in June. In the meantime, happy listening. Happy listening.